News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Small businesses, and we know there were supports that were offered during the pandemic, but one of the conditions of that support was that when the pandemic was over, that money had to be paid back. But how is that going now? Dan Kelly joins us now, the head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, to talk more about this. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Let's talk about these loans, because there is a new survey out that shows uh, not very many of them have actually been repaid. What is it, 13% of businesses have managed to repay these? Only 13% of small firms have fully repaid the loans. Uh, And sadly, only about half of small businesses are telling us that their sales are back to pre-pandemic levels. So the recovery is still a stubbornly slow one. So would you say it's just too difficult for a lot of these businesses to to repay them right now? Yeah, it is really worrisome. Uh, Remember, these these were loans, uh, the Canada Emergency Business Account, CBA, was created right near the start of the pandemic. And, and the goal was to, to extend a bit of a loan to small businesses with a forgivable component. Uh, and that would allow the business to, to have some money to pay its bills, to get through what at the time we thought was maybe two weeks or two months right. to flatten the curve. Uh, the deadline was originally December 31st of 2022, which is, of course is, has just passed. Uh, but But wisely, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christy Freeland, did extend the deadline to the end of this year. Um, That gives businesses a little bit more time to repay the loan. And if you repay the most of the loan, you get to keep a forgivable component. So if you had a $60,000 loan, you got to keep $20,000 if you repaid the $40,000 by the deadline. That deadline is getting closer, though, and only 13% of small firms have actually repaid these loans in full. Uh, and most are telling us that they don't know where they're going to find the money at this stage because their their sales are below where they were pre-pandemic. And even those whose sales have returned are telling us that that their cost increases have been just so massive that they're not making money. Is it How difficult is it, Dan, then, to kind of talk to the federal government about this? Because clearly there's there's still a lot of struggling going on out there. There sure is, and 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 we have been talking actively with the deputy prime minister, with uh, with many other MPs uh, of all parties. Uh, I, we were pleased to see just uh, just this week the NDP has actually said that they support our call, CFIB's call, to extend the loans uh, another year to give more businesses time to repay. But we haven't seen any movement now. To her credit, the Christy Freeland did extend the deadline by a year. She did that, I think, around Christmas of 2021. Um, Unfortunately, though, we haven't, you know, (laughs) remember, people were predicting that as we came out of pandemic restrictions, there would be these boom times where businesses would be just flush with cash as, as consumers crawled out of their basements and started to spend, spend, spend. Well, if that's happened, it certainly hasn't happened with the local small business, the local restaurant or coffee shop, the uh, the local re- the independent retailers, they're still struggling deeply. And and I, I don't know where they're going to find the money to repay these loans. And if they don't repay these loans, the government of Canada is on the hook. So we that's why we think giving them more time is actually a smart economic policy for Ottawa. Do you think maybe, what, another year? I feel like a lot of businesses, maybe this year, they're starting to see a return to pre-pandemic sales. So would another year help? We really, that, that's exactly what we've recommended. We've said, give us, you know, if, if the, the, the 
goal of the loan was to give you two years to deal with the short-term problems of the restrictions. The restrictions went on much longer than anyone had expected. Uh, we do think that another that two years to repay, so 2022-2023 would be, uh, sorry, to give small businesses two, two more years, uh, which would have been extending it to the end of this year. That will help. And that is our recommendation to Ottawa. Okay, so it's not like you're saying forgive the loans. You're saying they just need more time. No, but we are suggesting that a, a larger percentage of the loan be forgivable. Uh, that right now, a third of the $60,000 loan is forgivable. And we've suggested extending that to 50%, at least for the sectors that were in, in deep lockdown. I mean, gosh, I, you know, Vancouver had a little bit of a lighter, or BC had a bit of a lighter version of the restrictions that some parts of the country had. Um, in, if you can believe it, in the city I'm in right now, Toronto, Restaurants and gyms were closed, entirely closed, for 430 days. That's crazy. How these guys are still alive I don't know. is beyond me. I don't uh, know. It's, That's it's, so true. It's an incredible testament to, to, the, to, the, to the strength. And even in those, those provinces that had lighter restrictions, their sales nosedived and, and, and are still in rough shape. Yes, I was, I was going to ask you that. So would you say that there's an uneven recovery? Like have some businesses rebound, rebounded in some provinces better than others? Yes, there has been there has been some of that, but look, we've what we've all experienced as Canadians, regardless of where we are, is giant cost increases. And on tax on the tax side of the equation, the British Columbia government has added their their measures like uh, new paid sick leave and other costs. Uh, the federal government increased both employment insurance and Canada pension plan premiums. There's carbon tax increases, all sorts of tax hikes on top of general cost increases that are right now affecting small firms and. And this is quite worrisome. All right. So then are you hopeful about this, Dan, that you might be able to get the government's attention on this? Yeah, I do think that, look, that we've, we've recommended a few things. We've recommended there's about 50,000 loan recipients that, in fact, are now deemed ineligible and they're going to lose the forgivable component. We've asked for three things, to delay the, to delay the deadline to repay till the end of 2024 to forgive a larger component, and to make whole those businesses that have now been deemed ineligible. I do get the sense that the feds are listening. Whether they're going to go to the full, whether they're going to go all the way on all three of our recommendations remains to be seen. All right, I will be talking to you again about that. Dan, thank you. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Why won't the Trudeau government commit to more investigation? Especially after allegations that weeks before the 2019 election, national security officials gave an urgent classified briefing to senior aides to the prime minister, warning that one of their Toronto area candidates, who was now an MP, was supported by China. Well, this morning, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has joined the call for a public inquiry, saying the serious allegations deserve a, quote, thorough, transparent and independent investigation. So the pressure here is huge. What are the concerns about investigating this? Well, joining us now is Michelle Junokatsuya, who's a former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure. Good morning. When you hear about these allegations, are you surprised at all? Well, I'm surprised in the sense that, um, no, no, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that, unfortunately, uh, government, and it's all government in the last few decades, uh, have ignored the warning that Jesus has brought to their attention about the uh, noting that the, uh, the, the Chinese have tried to uh, uh, 
influence our democratic process. Way back in the mid-90s, uh, when I was a thesis, uh, in charge of Asia-Pacific, we were already warning the government that we had found evidence in uh, the record of uh, Election Canada that the embassy, the Chinese embassy, was giving money to both political, uh, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. Uh, through the years, we've seen agents of influence working really, really diligently uh, and penetrating all level of government, uh, municipal, provincial, and federal government. So it's not only the federal government that has been targeted, the, the other level of government have been targeted as well. So it's a major, major, major problem that has been neglected for too long um, because probably the agent of influence were too efficient. Okay, but you're also saying, though, that this is both parties, like these are, this has been going on for a while. So would you say warnings have been issued to governments no matter what the political party? Not only the the, the, the two main uh, political party, every single party in uh, the federal uh, House of Commons have been warned and have been compromised at one point or another. They all knew it. They all knew it. So throwing rocks, I say, be careful. You're living in a glass house. You've been told uh, that uh, some of your uh, MPs have been uh, compromised in the past and you've done nothing. And that's the reason why I'm calling for the necessity and the urgency to have a law on foreign interference. Because now we're talking about China, but that's not only China that is doing such a thing. Uh, everybody knows, for example, the uh, implication of the uh, Russian intelligence services. And that's another thing also that we need to point out. It's not done simply by rogue diplomats or, or, or individuals who simply wants to try to sort of have their candidates go in. It is an, an uh, 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 intelligence operation launched by certain countries to really, uh, uh, with sophisticated uh, means, to be capable to sort of uh, uh, direct the election and, right. and eventually have their own uh, uh, candidate coming in. Michelle, does this seem different to you this time, though, that with the pressure on the Trudeau government, do you think there might, might something might actually get done? I think this time we cannot avoid it. I think this time we will be forced to do something. There is currently a committee that is, has been urgently put together that will study the thing. It is a multi-party. Uh, all the parties are extremely concerned. I think there is the, 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 it's, it's, it's right. The timing is right. Uh, the ray of sunshine that I've seen uh, back in the fall when the Trudeau government finally announced that the uh, Chinese government, government was, and I quote, uh, a, a, a disruptor on the international uh, scene. So, yes, it is an agent of, of influence that is breaking up uh, a lot of alliance. We need to be capable to sort of tackle this from a national security point of view. And we need to rally all the parties together because we are all affected. It's not a question of simply sort of pulling on the, the blanket on your side now. You, we need to work together because this is our democracy that is under siege. Michelle, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Michelle Juno Katsuya, who's a former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and the author of Nest of Spies. There will be more to come on this story. And so keep it tuned in right here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Imagine what would have happened if BC ferries raised prices by more than 10% every year for the next four years. Well, that's what recent submissions to the BC Ferries Commissioner was predicting. 
But we also know what we heard on the weekend is that is not going to happen. So let's find out why. And what are some of the challenges here? Transportation Minister Rob Fleming joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what was this announcement on the weekend? What does this mean for people who need BC ferries? Well, this means that uh, affordability, reasonable fares, um, locking in some of the discounts that the provincial government has provided since 2019 will remain intact and that the historic 40-year highs or global inflation that's hitting our province right now isn't going to hit them as they get to and from work or to and from medical appointments, especially those living in ferry-dependent communities where it's the only transportation method available for them that uh, that will protect that and give some predictability and keep affordability in mind. That was That was really what yesterday's announcement was about to take us into 2028. Okay, so that's keeping ferry rates at a certain level? Yeah, that's right. 3% or lower. Um, It's interesting. I mean, the government is doing what it did yesterday to protect affordability. The negotiation, if you like, uh, is really between BC Ferries as a corporation making the submission. They asked for an average of 10.4% per year going forward in the next what is called a performance term. It's like a four-year service contract. Um, but it, we have an independent ferry commissioner who ultimately looks at those numbers, uh, dissects them, and makes a determination. Ferries, ferry commissioner's job, that's a very important one, is to come up with a, a price cap. So she will set uh, for the next four years the performance term uh, price cap. But bearing in mind that the province has advanced from year-end funding uh, $500 million to cover fare increases over those four years, that will make a huge difference on affordability. And that really protects people too. Or here on Vancouver Island, where I live, and smaller island communities, um, a, lot of, a lot of produce and goods and food arise by truck. Um, you know, construction materials to build housing here, like the price of everything would have been affected uh, if rates had gone up by, you know, 40% over the next term. Okay, and so I guess so. What you were hearing then, or what the BC Ferries Commissioner was hearing, that if this wasn't done, it was going to be a pretty, it sounds like, steep hike for people. Yeah, I mean, BC Ferries, like just going into this interview, your your, your news update talked about um, the, the fuel fluctuating costs, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and other global factors, making that an unpredictable commodity. Um, labor costs are going up. Uh, BC Ferries, like a lot of transportation companies, had to defer uh, capital programs, shipbuilding, repairing docks. So there's things that need to be done uh, in the next performance term. We need to get back to normal, but we can't let it uh, be, you know, uh, at the cost of, of everyday British Columbians. You know, three quarters of us live on BC's coast. We use ferries at least occasionally, and many people have to use it daily to get to and from work and to do their business. So this was really about protecting uh, all those British Columbians that uh, live in ferry-dependent communities or need to use the ferry as a, as a means of transportation. And what about the upgrading of the ferries? What about things like retrofitting the fleet? What about electrifying BC ferries? Yeah, uh, so, you know, that's that's going to happen. We have some electric-ready ferries right now. There are six of them, island-class vessels, but currently they're burning fossil fuels until they get electric shore power infrastructure that can charge them. Um, so we've got service, for example, between Power River and Texada. Uh, Port McNeil is using one of these 
hybrid electric ferries as well, Nanaimo, Gabriola, and um, if any of your listeners are planning to go up to Quadra Island via Campbell River, they'll be on one of these new vessels as, w- as well. So we're we're going to help uh, BC Ferries accelerate electrification, and that will, in turn, over the next few years, allow them to not be so vulnerable to fluctuating fuel prices and also, of course, having a, a benefit for the environment. All right. What about upgrading the ships themselves? That must be quite a challenge right now. Yeah, although it is good to see that of the scan we did in BC's shipbuilding capacity, there is an incredible wealth of skills and facilities that do ship grade, uh, sh- sorry, ship repairs and upgrades um, across the coast of BC, as, as far away as uh, Port Alberni here in Victoria, over on the lower mainland. Um, of course, it helps immensely that C-SPAN uh, won a contract with the federal government to build the Polar 8 icebreakers that's going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into their facility to modernize that shipyard. And we hope that uh, ferries will be built in BC again one day, but uh, those are all positive developments. And certainly the capacity in the ship repair and ship upgrade facilities in BC is, is in very good shape. Right. And there are still, there are hybrid ships on the water right now, is there not? That's right. There's six um, on those service routes that I mentioned. So uh, they just are, they use battery operations when they're in port, when they have dwell time before they're loading, but they don't use them on the main runs for the propulsion system. So, but they're fully capable of being fully electrified. We just need to get the charging infrastructure in there and, uh, that's what uh, the government of British Columbia is going to support. We hope the federal government will support marine electrification. They're certainly supporting uh, vehicle electrification with a massive deal for the auto sector in Ontario. They've got some deals with Quebec on their electrification strategy with rare earth minerals. But we've got a cluster of innovative marine battery technology companies here. Those six ships, those island-class hybrids, their battery systems were made right here in Richmond, B.C. So we have engineers and uh, technicians that are creating really good technology, not only for our own marine sector, but potentially for export to customers around the world. Have you talked to the federal government about that? I have indeed, yes. And they know it's a priority and they're interested and we hope that their support is pending. All right, we'll see. Minister Fleming, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Sammy. That is Rob Fleming, BC's Minister of Transportation, talking about the announcement over the weekend that will impact BC ferries. So BC ferries, like everything else, feeling those cost pressures. So the submissions that were coming to the BC Ferries Commissioner about rate hikes were looking at something like, what, 10% or more increase in each of the next four years because of all the different pressures of inflation and everything going on right now in the supply chain. So... The provincial government has stepped in, provided funding that will keep the annual increase in ferry rates 3% or below for the next four years and hoping that, you know, all those inflationary cost pressures will ease as a result of that. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. If you or anyone you love has had a cancer diagnosis, then you know how stressful it is. Having gone through this in my family, I know those first days after diagnosis are really challenging. 
because you wonder what's going to happen now. When is treatment going to begin? How can we tackle this? And any delay in getting treatment underway is just, you know, to me, absolutely unacceptable. So hearing those stories from cancer patients recently about how long it was taking to get diagnosis or treatment has been just too much. It's been just too much to hear those. The provincial government has now announced, though, a $440 million cancer action plan. So can we stop these stories from happening? Well, Health Minister Adrian Dix is with us now for more on that. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, first off, let's hear the details of this plan. What does it entail? Well, it focuses uh, first on prevention and detection. In other words, uh, supporting, uh, supporting a series of measures that will stop people from getting cancer, protect people from various forms of cancer. Secondly, increase in treatment. So that means extending hours in the immediate term and, and several immediate actions to improve cancer care, but also over the next 10 years, because that diagnosis that you just spoke of, that my family has is dealt with and is dealing with as well, is of course a stressful thing, but we know there's going to be twice as many people over 75 in the next 10 years. There's going to be dramatically more age-related cancer, which is a significant portion of cancer in our province. And so we have to take action to prepare for it. Thirdly, it's to innovate, of course, and to invest in research and support. This also helps us attract the clinicians we need because most of our clinicians, a huge part of our cancer clinicians, are also cancer researchers. So this allows us to attract more people. All of these are actions we're taking in the immediate and then over the next 10 years to address issues, uh, issues uh, that people with a cancer diagnosis are dealing with and to, uh, and to deal with what we see before us, which is a significant increase in cancer, not just because um, uh, of increasing population, but because, of course, many of the people being treated with cancer now have much better survival prospects. BC leads in survival prospects, us in Alberta, in the country. And that means ongoing treatment over a period of time, something that maybe a generation or two ago we didn't see. And I remember hearing that at the cancer center where they said to you, listen, we're going to get this, but you're going to be back here. Uh, eventually in a few years, and we're going to get it that time too. So that almost feels like a whole new system, doesn't it? Well, it, it does, but it's, it's of course, you know, um, in case of my mom, she had a major cancer surgery in the late 1990s. She's still alive today, and she had two major surgeries, right? And she survived that because of extraordinary actions of doctors in the cancer center and because of early diagnosis, and primary care is very important in this important for early diagnosis. It's why we're doing, for example, lung cancer screening for the first time ever. We're leading the country in that to get earlier diagnoses, which means better outcomes. And I'm still dealing with issues around cancer today. But of course, the what's happened in the meantime, that 25 years of life, it's, it's of incalculable value. So BC used to be a leading cancer care center. Do you think we can get back there with these changes? Uh, the, that is absolutely our plan. I mean, we're in terms of outcomes, we're still leading. We're second in the country. But I think uh, all jurisdictions are facing a significant increase in demand, and that's what we've seen in the last uh, six to nine months. We're doing more cancer care, more screenings, more uh, 
surgeries, etc. But demand has increased significantly. So we have to meet that demand, but we also have to improve the level of care, improve outcomes. And so we're focused on both things in this plan. And really at the heart of that is patients providing support for patients and all, all patients, those who need immediate responses, those who need immediate responses and support in the long term. And what about people who live outside kind of a major center where it's easier for them to access treatment? People who live in those smaller communities, that is tough. That's right. We have about uh, 41 community oncology network uh, centers across the province. But sometimes, even then, people need to travel to those centers. We have regional centers. So what are we doing? One, we're adding new regional centers. The new Surrey Hospital will have a cancer center, which is significant for our fastest-growing region, which is the Fraser Health Authority. Uh, the Burnaby, cancer, uh, Burnaby Hospital Project will have the same. Again, our fast-growing region, which is in Fraser Health new centers in Kamloops and Nanaimo, an expansion of our broader network around the province. And you saw in the plan on Friday, increased supports for travel for uh, for patients living with cancer and dealing and traveling to get care, which sometimes is still necessary. Two of the most significant things we've done in the last number of years for many cancer patients in BC are the new PET-CT scanners in Kelowna and Victoria, which we have put in place and funded and supported. And people come up to me all the time when I'm in Victoria and they tell me what a difference that makes, not having to travel to Vancouver, for example, for that scan with all the stress associated with it. So that bringing cancer care closer to communities is both a key part of the plan, but really a key part of what we've tried to do over the last five years. Have you set goals for this plan as well? Like, for instance, are there going to be benchmarks for how long a person should be waiting to see an oncologist? Well, there are benchmarks, and of course, we have to meet those benchmarks, and that's our, and that's that's key to the plan. But in addition to that, there's uh, there's the there's the prevention aspect of this, the elimination of cervical cancer in our province as part of the 10-year plan, increasing access to programs like screening programs. Uh, the building out of our lung cancer screening program, already thousands of people have, have gone through that, but also the expansion of our hereditary cancer program. All of those things see earlier diagnosis, and we need to meet benchmarks for those. And also, uh, in addition to that, I think the ma- very significant increase in research here is important to recruit the oncologists we need, specialists we need, the technologists we need to ensure that as the number of people diagnosed with cancer uh, increases over the next 10 years, which it's going to do, that we have the staff there ready to serve them. Do you think we can actually eliminate cervical cancer? I absolutely do. It's absolutely before us, not just here in BC, but in the world. Absolutely in our in our hands to do that through vaccination, through other sports and screening, but absolutely it's within our uh, hands to do. And, and uh, I think, and I think most people in BC think, that uh, we should proceed with everything we have to make sure that that happens. Okay, so are a lot of these changes, are they effective immediately? I know oncologists are going to get a raise too. Is all that immediate? Uh, yes, in terms of some of those raises that assist in recruitment, we have to be competitive with other jurisdictions, and uh, that was a key part of our uh, our master agreement with doctors. So yes, those things are happening. You remember in primary care, we put that in place. About almost 2,000 doctors now have signed on to that plan, primary care doctors. It's almost 50%. 
which is the most significant change in primary care, which is very important for cancer care. You know, in the case of my family, it was early diagnosis that yeah. led to the results I spoke to. So those, that part's really important. So those changes are going in place right away. We're working with the BC Can- Cancer Foundation to support those recruitment efforts as well. They'll play a key role. The money is going into research right away. And we're taking specific actions now to deal with some of the challenges we're facing in the immediate. For example, uh, there there was um, an issue around uh, surgeries uh, for gynecological surgeons uh, for cancer, and we've recently significantly added hours in the last few months to address that. So we have to take actions in the immediate, but also we need to build out for the next 10 years. Listen, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Hey, right on. T- anytime, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, talking about improvements to cancer care that honestly cannot come soon enough. We shouldn't have even one story of a patient waiting too long to get treatment in this province. This is Mornings with Simi. What is the Trudeau government going to do? Well, that is the question this morning after more and more people are demanding that the government take action against alleged Chinese interference in our federal election, particularly the one in 2019. According to a global news investigation, the prime minister's office was warned that a Chinese interference probe was happening. Now, the allegations involve Han Dong, an Ontario MP who was allegedly being tracked by CSIS throughout the 2019 campaign for being an affiliate in China's election interference network. So lots of demands that the government do something about this. Why won't they have a public inquiry? Why won't they investigate further? Well, this morning we know that the federal NDP is joining the calls to make that happen. Leader Jagmeet Singh calling for a public inquiry into alleged China. Chinese interference in federal election, saying we need to investigate this further. So joining us now to talk about it is Peter Julian, NDP House Leader. Thank you very much for being here. Good, good to be with you. So what brought the NDP to this point? Why call for this now? Well, these are serious allegations. Uh, the, the reality is, uh, according uh, to the leaked documents that were sent to the Globe and Mail, that there were nine liberals and two conservative candidates uh, that were helped in some part by foreign interference through uh, uh, through Chinese sources. Now, the reality is, if there was funding that was involved, if there were contraventions to the Elections Act, we know that is very serious. Uh, former Conservative MP Dean Del Mastro went to prison because he tried to skirt the election rules that are very rigorous in this country. So these are serious allegations, and they need to be treated uh, with the importance uh, that uh, that they provoke. And, and that's why uh, Jagmeet Singh has called for a public inquiry. Okay, and what? how long would this take, do you think? How do you unfold this happening? I feel like people want this done, like, now. Uh, yes, but and, and uh, we have at the same time uh, a House of Commons committee, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, is looking into that. We're, we're having meetings this week as well, so there'll be witnesses coming forward. This, this is something that needs to be taken seriously, in the House of Commons. A public inquiry helps us to get to the bottom of, of the, the extent of Chinese government interference, but also uh, we've, we've seen in other democracies, uh, the, the Russian interference in the Brexit referendum on the conservative side. Uh, we saw with Donald Trump's election in 2016 uh, that there was uh, uh, interference from, from Russian sources that helped to make a difference in that election campaign. This is not something that we can take lightly uh, it, it can be determinate when uh, Russian government, Chinese government, or 
any other government chooses to interfere in a democratic election, it can have far-reaching consequences. And so it needs to be taken uh, with the seriousness uh, that, that, uh, that, that we've seen. So does Canada, do you think, need greater protection? And what would that look like? Well, first off, we, we have a solid elections act that, uh, that is very rigorous and, and people go to prison if they try to counteract it. So the Elections Act is already, uh, I think, in place. And, and that means that you can't have foreign funding. You can't uh, have people providing indirect support for any candidate. Uh, conservative and liberal candidates were apparently, from uh, the articles that we've seen, funded or supported in some way. So we need to determine to, to what extent the Elections Act was violated. The penalties are already there and people go to prison. If, if they violate the Elections Act. So I think on the one hand that we have a, we already have in place many of the institutional structures that protect our democracy. Uh, we need the government and we need Mr. Trudeau to take this seriously. And, and we need to make sure that we have in place a public inquiry to see the extent to which the, these, uh, these liberal and conservative candidates were supported. We've also heard, though, that this is not a new situation. We talked to a former CSIS official earlier this morning who said, listen, this is all parties. Uh, do you think there is something more at risk here of the system? Is this something that all parties, do you think, need to take a look at and say, how do we deal with this? Uh, well, I, I think the Elections Act already protects uh, Canadians to know that, that this kind of interference uh, should not take place, can't take place. Um, I, I think uh, for that CISA's person to say all parties, I, I think, is a bit disingenuous. Uh, the, the reports are very specific about liberal and conservative candidates uh, being supported and, and funded. I, I think it's important for political parties to make sure that there is no foreign interference. And that includes uh, the social media trolls that we see um, that the, the Russian Internet Research Agency has, has used uh, in, in elections in the United Kingdom and referendum in the United States election. Uh, so these are concerns. But ultimately, the Elections Act needs to be uphold. All parties need to make sure that their candidates are strictly abiding by the requirements of the Elections Act. And when there are concerns raised and evidence submitted that shows that perhaps those election uh, rules were counter uh, countered and, and somehow uh, candidates tried to get around them. Uh, there needs to be serious, uh, serious consequences. And, and that's why the public inquiry will hopefully give us the full extent of the evidence. And and uh, that should lead to consequences for those liberal and conservative candidates that may have received support that is illegal under Canada, Canada's Elections Act. Uh, what are the next steps here then? Well, this week we'll, we'll be having hearings into uh, the extent of that interference. Uh, the, the NDP will be uh, putting forward motions as well on this. Uh, we've, we've heard Jagmeet Singh call for a public inquiry. The NDP will be certainly pushing that uh, next week when Parliament reconvenes. There is no doubt this needs to be treated seriously. I don't believe Mr. Trudeau has treated it seriously at all. And, and quite frankly, the fact that Liberals and Conservatives have benefited from this is something that I think should be of concern to all Canadians. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, my pleasure. Always good to speak with you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. 
All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.